You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And we ask that now as we look at your word, we are before it and our eyes are open to it. We pray that our spiritual eyes may be open, that we may behold in it wonderful things. And may our hearts be open before your word this morning that you might teach us and instruct us and reprove us, rebuke us, encourage us, and sanctify us by your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, anytime you have the opportunity to learn from somebody who is a master at what they do, I would suggest you take the opportunity to do that. One of the best ways to learn a new trade or learn a new skill is to find somebody who performs that trade or performs that skill and does so with excellence and does so with um, intelligence and skill and craftsmanship and then to come alongside them and learn from them if you can. Uh, this this summer, I'm going to have the opportunity on my days off to learn from a stonemason. There's a guy who's doing a development behind my house, and he does a lot of rock work, and he's a very skilled mason, does a lot of stonework, um, very, very gifted and talented in what he does, and he asked me if I would like to come over and learn how to do that. Now, you say, are you going to quit pastoring to lay stone? No, I'm not planning on doing that at all, but knowledge is its own reward. And I thought it would be kind of neat to learn how to do stonework, so I'm going to go learn how to do stonework. Now, I'm not going to walk up to somebody who never touched a bucket of concrete in their life and ask them to teach me how to do stonework, but if I have the opportunity to learn from a real craftsman, then I'm going to take that opportunity. Anytime you want to learn a skill or ability, you find somebody who does it with excellence, and you ask them to teach you how to do it. If you want to learn how to be a cabinet maker or a woodworker, you find somebody who's skilled in that, has a lot of experience in that, and gifted at that, and a real craftsman, and Come alongside them and ask them to mentor you. If you want to find out how to fly a plane, then you pilots who are amongst us know that you don't just read a book and climb into the cockpit of a 747. You find somebody who has done it a long period of time and has the ability and the skill and the experience, and you learn from them. If you want to learn to preach or teach, you don't just climb into a pulpit somewhere and start talking. You find somebody who is gifted and skilled and has experience and does it with excellence, and you ask them to mentor you. Wouldn't it have been great to just be able to come alongside the Apostle Paul and to learn from the Apostle Paul firsthand? Wouldn't it have been awesome just to listen to him teach, to listen to him preach, to listen to him correct people, to listen to him disciple people, to see how he scheduled his days, how he used his times, to listen to him pray, to see how he evangelized people? Wouldn't that have been phenomenal? I mean, how blessed were Dr. Luke and Timothy, and Titus, and Aristarchus, and Gaius, and those Priscilla and Aquila, and those men and women that traveled with Paul and saw him minister day after day after day, and were discipled by Paul himself. We, the, only, the closest that we can get is to get that second hand through the text of Scripture. In the epistles, we see the Apostle Paul's teaching, what it is that he taught. In the book of Acts, we get to see his style. We get to sort of come alongside the Apostle Paul and observe a master in action at what he does. And that's what we're going to do today in Acts chapter 28. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 28. The text that we read, we're going to be looking at a couple of the verses there. And we're going to come alongside the Apostle Paul, as it were, and we're just going to sit in on a session. 
It is a session where Paul is in Rome. He's at his own personal rented quarters. He is chained to a Roman guard, or at least has a Roman guard present. And I would suspect that with the number of people that were there, there were more than one, more than just one soldier that was present with Paul. But we're going to sit in on an evangelistic encounter between the Apostle Paul and a group of Jews in the city of Rome, the leading men of the Jews. This is the second encounter that Paul had. Last week we looked at the first encounter, verses 17 to 21. We saw Paul introduce himself, explain to them how it was that he came to Rome, why he was in chains, why he had a court date with Nero, explained all of that to them, and how the Jews had opposed him. And they said to Paul, we haven't heard anything bad about you. This thing called Christianity, that's spoken against everywhere. But you, nobody has written us any letters. Nobody has come to us and slandered you. We haven't heard anything bad about you reported from the brethren. But we are hearing a lot about Christianity. So we would like to hear your views concerning this sect. Since you're a rabbi, since you're a Christian preacher, what is it that you say about this sect called Christianity? Well, that's man, that's an open door, is it not? Somebody walks up to you and says, tell me what Christians believe. Some of you, that's the witnessing encounter that you're waiting for. You're waiting for your coworker to come up and say, look, you're a Christian, I'm not. I want to know what you guys believe and why. How many of you has that ever happened to? You're still waiting for that encounter, aren't you? You may have had that happen once or twice. I doubt if you lined up in the grocery line at Walmart and you're standing there and somebody turns around and says, look, you look like a Christian, I'm not a Christian. Why don't you tell me what you believe and why? That just doesn't happen. That's what happened with Paul. He's in Rome and they said, look, we want to hear your views. Preach it to us, brother. So verses 23 through the end of the chapter is this second encounter that Paul had. We're going to look at verses 23 and 24 this morning. We're going to deal with verses 25 through the end of the, almost the end of the chapter next week. And that is because verse 26 and verse 27, you see it in your Bible? You'll notice that it's capitalized or italics or however your Bible sets it apart as a quotation from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. And uh, all of this is one encounter. We're going to deal with the quotation from Isaiah next week, but it kind of comes together with what's in verses 23 and 24. So we're just going to look at verse 23 and 24 this morning. I'll read it. You follow along with me. And we're going to see four sort of key elements or four key things that are in this encounter with Paul, in, in this encounter between Paul and the Jews in Rome. Verse 23. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, And he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Just stop right there. I want you to notice four things. First of all, we're going to notice the, the place of Paul's ministry, his evangelistic ministry in Rome. Where did they come to him at? Verse 23 says, at his lodging. Why is his lodging? Well, if Paul had the freedom to go out into every synagogue and meet with every Jew who would meet with him, he would have done that. But he's not. He's a house prisoner. He has a Roman guard who he's chained to day and night. Verse 16 says Paul was allowed to stay by himself, but he did have a Roman guard that was there. Verse 30 says that for two years he spent time in his own rented quarters. He rented an apartment there or a, a house of some sort, some sort of a dwelling place that he rented, and he was allowed to stay there for two years. Now, he can't go out and meet with the Jews, so the Jews have come to him. And they set a day after hearing Paul and saying, Paul, preach it to us. Tell us what it is that you believe. They assigned a day. Paul said, I'll be ready for you. And they showed up. And Luke said they showed up in large numbers. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but friends, I just want you to notice something. I want you to notice that when those people came to the Apostle Paul in his own rented quarters, the fact that he was assigned a Roman guard and was not allowed to go outside of his house and that he was under arrest and suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that would have spoken volumes 
to those who came to Paul to hear him speak. You know why? Because as they walk into his house, they realize he's a prisoner in his own home. And those Jews are thinking to themselves, this guy is suffering for what he believes. He's serious about it. This is not some fly-by-night teacher who shows up at every town with two suits, two sermons, and a, a bottle of hair gel and puts on this thing and then lives large off of God's people. This guy is suffering for what he believes. And he could easily end the suffering if he would just renounce what it is that he believes. This adds a level of credibility to the Apostle Paul. Because they understand he's serious about this. He believes it. We want to hear what it is that he has to say. Because this is a guy that is willing to die for what he believes. And friends, I don't want you to underestimate the value of your own home. Paul invited these people in large numbers into his home. Now, what does Luke mean by large numbers? I wish he would have put a figure to that. To some of you, having five or six people in your house is large numbers. For others of you, 20 or 30 people is large numbers. To me, this is a, this is a large number of people, but I would actually expect even more people than this came to the Apostle Paul at his dwelling to listen to him preach and teach concerning Jesus. Hundreds? You'll find out later in the text it was all day long that he did this. And they were coming, I think, in waves. And they were listening and they were coming and leaving and they were staying. Some of them staying longer than others. Large numbers. Never underestimate the power of your own home in evangelism. Now, I talked about this a few weeks ago about hospitality, inviting other Christians into your home. Listen, friends, do this. Invite, you ready for this? This is a scandal. Unbelievers into your home. Unbelievers. Invite unbelievers into your home for a meal. You know why? Because after you have showed enough grace to feed them and entertain them and visit with them and you have put on a spread and they have eaten at your table in your house and enjoyed your fellowship and your company, they will listen to you talk about your Savior in your own home on your own turf. They'll do that. Why? Because you've shown them how a Christian husband treats his wife and how a Christian husband treats his kids and how a godly wife submits to her husband and what it means to live in harmony and peace and eat your bread in quietness and they begin to see Christianity displayed right in your own home. Invite unbelievers in and never underestimate the power of your own home in your own personal ministry and even in evangelism. Invite unbelievers in. Show them grace and share the Savior with them. That's what Paul does. They come to him in large numbers. That's the place of his ministry. Second, I want you to notice the passion of his ministry. This is my favorite part. I'll tell you right now, out of chapter 28, this is my favorite verse. The passion of Paul's ministry. You're going to read three words there that I think should be underlined in your Bible because they're underlined in my Bible. And if I could, I would step out there and underline all of them in each one of your Bibles. Three words. Look at them in verse 23. He was explaining, solemnly testifying, and trying to persuade. Explaining, solemnly testifying, and persuading them concerning Jesus. Now, I want you to know that I resisted a tremendous temptation this week because I could preach a sermon on each one of those words. I could give you a whole sermon about what it means to explain the Scriptures and why that's necessary and why it's not going on and why it has to happen more. And I could give you a whole sermon about what solemnly testifying means. And I could preach for weeks on being persuasive. And why it is that you and I should pour all of our passion, all of our lives, all of our giftedness, and all of our talents, and everything that we have into seeking to persuade men concerning the truth. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go through all three of these things. I'm going to take them one at a time, and I'm going to apply them to two different things. First of all, I'm going to apply them to your own personal evangelism, what it means to explain, solemnly testify, and persuade men concerning the truth. 
And then I'm going to apply them to teaching and preaching because that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. So we'll look at what each one is, apply them to evangelism, and apply them to preaching and teaching. And I'll do my best to get through all three of these before our time runs out this morning. And hopefully I won't get off any rabbit trails, and hopefully I won't say a a whole bunch of things, because whenever it is that I get passionate about something, I tend to say some things maybe about things that are better left unsaid. And I'll try and avoid that this morning and try and not be too passionate when I'm preaching about being passionate. Does that sound good? Some of you don't even know what I just said. First, explaining. The Greek word that Paul uses there that Luke translates, or that Luke uses, that is translated in our Bibles, explaining, is ektithemi. Where does that come from every once in a while? Ektithemi is the Greek word. And it means to expose something. To explain something. To expose something. It was used of, of taking something out in front of people and taking the covers off of it and exposing it to the elements. We might use the word today, and I would prefer this word, to exposit something. You say, oh, here Jim goes again about expository preaching. Friends, that's what exposition is. It's explaining. This is what Paul did. You're going to find out later on that all of these, explaining, solemnly testifying, and persuading them, was all done from the law and the prophets. So keep in mind that as I'm describing to you what Paul is doing, all of this is coming from the Old Testament Scriptures. He is explaining to them. He is expounding. He is uncovering. He is opening up. He is exposing. He is exposing the truth to these people. And He is exposing these people to the truth. And He is explaining to them sin, righteousness, judgment to come, who Jesus was, what Jesus did, why it was necessary that the Messiah would die, why it was necessary that the Messiah would suffer, that He would rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father. He was going to the, He was going to Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, the Old Testament prophets, and from the law of Moses, all day long, from Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, he was explaining to them these concepts. Friends, in, in evangelism, that's what you have to do to people. You cannot simply say to people, God loves you, God wants you in heaven, ask Jesus into your heart, and you'll go to heaven and be happy. That's not the Gospel. That's not the Gospel. That is not even close to the Gospel. That's what is typically preached, but that's not even close to the Gospel. I'm not saying that God doesn't love you, and I'm not saying that you don't need to trust in Jesus for salvation. But friends, what you do need is you do need to explain to them who God is, what God has done, what God's holy standards are. You need to explain the law to them and how they've broken that. Explain what sin is. Explain why it is that they're a sinner. Explain what God says about their sin, how God feels about their sin, and what God has done for their sin. And then you have to explain who Christ is and why He came and what He did. And then you have to explain to them what repentance means and what faith means and trust means and salvation means. You have to explain all of that to them. That's what Paul was doing. Explaining to them. Now let me apply it to some preachers and teachers, because there are some of you here. Some of you are preachers and teachers and you don't know it yet. Working on you. Working on you hard. You don't know we're working on you, but someday you'll preach and you'll teach. There are a lot of teachers here, so let me apply this to you. People ask me all the time, Jim, do you think that expository teaching or expository preaching is the only valid method of preaching? Now some people ask the question this way. Do you honestly think that expository preaching and teaching is the only valid method of preaching. There's a difference between those two questions, right? Did you catch it? The answer to that question is an unqualified yes. Why? Because exposition equals explanation. That's what exposition is. It's explaining the text of Scripture. 
That's what the job of a teacher is. That's what the job of a preacher is. It is to take a text of Scripture and explain it to people. That's expository teaching. It's nothing to do with verse by verse. It has nothing to do with going slow, going fast. You might expound an entire book of the Bible in one sermon. Very difficult to do that, but you might do that. You might preach from a whole chapter. You might preach from one word. It has nothing to do with how fast you go. It has nothing to do with how many words you cover. It has nothing to do with the number of verses. It has everything to do with what you do with the text. So an explanation of Scripture means that you take a passage of Scripture and you put it out and you expose it to the people, take the covers off of it so everybody can see it, and say, oh, it's exposed to the elements. That's what that passage means. That's what that passage teaches. Whether it's one verse or ten verses, that's what that passage means. So that the meaning of the text is the meaning of the sermon. So is expository teaching the only valid method of preaching and teaching? Unqualified, yes. Why? Because if you're not going to explain the Scriptures, then what are you doing? Right? If you're not going to explain them, then what are you doing? Sit down and shut up. Stop wasting my time. Stop wasting your time. Stop wasting your breath. Save your breath to cool your porridge. If you're not going to explain the text of Scripture, then sit down and shut up because that is the only valid method of teaching the Word of God is to explain what it means in its context. And listen, Bible study teachers, preachers, Sunday school teachers, council time teachers, listen to this. This is your job, to take a concept or a text from Scripture and expose the meaning of it so that people will see in the text of Scripture the beauty, the holiness, and the majesty of God revealed. That's what exposition is. To expose God's majesty in the text of His Word and to expose God's people to God's majesty revealed in God's Word. That's explanation. That's what Paul did. Turn them to Psalm 22. Let me explain to you who David is talking about here. Let me explain to you who Isaiah is speaking of when Isaiah says, He was bruised for us. He was crushed for us. Let me explain to you what the psalmist means in Psalm 110. That's what Paul was doing, explaining these things to them. Now don't confuse, and this is an aside, and no extra charge for this one. Don't confuse verse by verse with exposition. Listen. A person may go through a whole book of the Bible from the first verse to the last verse and cover it verse by verse by verse and never explain what the texts mean. That's not exposition. You say, how can they do that? It's very difficult, but it's done all the time. How do they do it? They read verse 1, and then they tell you a story. They read verse 2, tell you what it means to them. Read verse 3, tell you a joke. Read verse 4, quote a couple of guys. Read verse 5. Quote the lyrics to a popular Christian song. Read verse 6. Quote the lyrics to a popular secular song. Read verse 7. Play a video clip up on the wall. Read verse 8. Tell you another story. Read verse 9. Quote a poem and pray. It's three points in a poem. That's the thing. Verse by verse by verse, reading it and rumbling on and rambling on all about it and never once explain the meaning of the text. has nothing to do with verse by verse. It has to do with God's people walking away and saying, I see it. I get it now. I understand what the text means. I understand how it fits with its context. I understand what the author's saying. I understand what I'm supposed to do now as a result of that. That's what Paul was doing, explaining. Second, Paul was solemnly testifying. The word, the Greek word that is at the root of that word, because it's, it's one word in the Greek. Solemnly testifying is one word in the Greek. And at the heart of that word is the word for martyr, marturos. It's the word for martyr, because a martyr in the New Testament time, in Paul's day, was just somebody who gave testimony in a courtroom. It wasn't necessarily somebody who died. It was just somebody who bore testimony and gave testimony in a court of law. 
That was a martyr. The word came to be used of those who would bear testimony in the ultimate sense of laying down their lives and sealing their testimony with their own blood. And so the word martyr kind of changed through history as it became used of those who would testify with their lives to what they believed to be true. Paul is using that word of a martyr of testimony, and it has in it the sense of being very serious. He's talking about a serious and an, a, a testifying in the te- in the sense of being very intent. There's no flippancy. It's a solemn testimony. It's a serious testimony, a certain testimony. That's the word that Paul is using. We got a lot of flippancy in our churches today, don't we? We have a lot of flippancy with evangelism, don't we? Friends, let me ask you, when you sit down to share Christ with somebody and you're wanting to explain to them the Word of God, do you have a big smile on your face and everything's cheerful and happy and you're just flippant and happy-go-lucky and tell a few jokes and here's what Jesus means to me and want to trust Him as your Savior? And Is that your approach to salvation? Or when things turn to spiritual things, does the person listening to you sense, okay, this is serious. Paul's talking about life and death issues, salvation and damnation, the wrath of God and the grace of God, heaven and hell Life and death, perishing and being saved. These are serious issues and Paul is solemnly testifying to the grace of God. He is approaching it with seriousness. It's not like you're sitting... When you talk about spiritual things with somebody, it's not like you're sitting down across the table with somebody talking about the football draft or what you had for dinner last night or the movie that you saw last week. It's not the same. When it turns to spiritual issues, all of a sudden, friends, I believe that you should become serious because you're dealing with eternal salvation issues that need to be addressed with this person. Now, does that mean that there's no room for humor? In teaching and preaching, do you think that I believe that it's wrong to use humor in teaching and preaching? No, I don't. Humor can be effective. Humor is a good thing. Humor is a great thing. You'd be surprised at the amount of stuff that I cut out of an average sermon just so that I don't just get up here and look like a stand-up comic. There's a lot of stuff that comes to my mind that I just simply refrain from saying because it's not appropriate. When you're dealing with serious issues, you need to be serious. When you're dealing with solemn themes, you need to be solemn. And when you're talking to somebody about Jesus Christ, you need to solemnly testify of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of flippancy in teaching and preaching today. came across a story this last week, and i got to read this to you because this is too good. read this on CanadianChristianity.com. Now, this is not a, a stab at our Canadian brethren to the north of us because... In my opinion, the United States has exported a lot more trash out of the churches than we've ever imported from any other country. But this one happens to have started, at least from what I can tell, somewhere either on the East Coast or up in Canada. But this was reported in CanadianChristianity.com. You know what the new trend is now? It's kind of a growing ministry. Clown communion. Clown communion. C-L-O-W-N, communion. Clown communion. They dress up in clown suits and do communion. So let me listen... This is just part of the article. Listen. To most Christians, clowns belong in circuses, not churches. I don't agree with that. Having clowns lead communion sounds irreverent and distracting. Probably because it is. But for Reverend David Smith, a clown communion service is a profoundly worshipful experience. Smith, pastor of Abbotsford Trinity Memorial United Church, makes clown communion services the highlight of his clown ministry. Quote, the entire clown communion service is led by the clowns who remain silent throughout, end quote, says Smith. The clowns involve the church audience in humorous, then increasingly serious and reverent parts of the service. Music, balloons, and mime hold the audience's attention. 
challenging viewers to see the Lord's Supper service through new eyes. Clowns perform skits illustrating humanity's encounter with God, followed by a silent sermon, a communion, and a final hymn. A commissioning at the end of the service encourages the audience to reflect on their new life in Christ, symbolized by the colors and details of the clown makeup. Refreshments follow each service, giving the audience opportunity to discuss the service with the clowns. End quote. I don't, I don't even know what to say about something like that. Well, yes, I do. I'd say it's a dog's breakfast. That's what it is. That whole thing is a dog's breakfast. What? Just when I think that we cannot stoop any lower, I'm shocked. And I read something, I think, yeah, we did it. We stooped. Friends, within months, we'll be stooping lower than clown communion somewhere in this country. Flippancy. Does that sound like solemn testifying to you? We have lost our solemnity. You know why we have lost our solemnity in churches? It's because we've stopped explaining the Scripture to people. And people do not see anymore the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God revealed in His Word. And so there's no solemnness. And instead, we have to have clown communion. And we have to another story. This this one just came to my mind. After Easter service, I read and heard of a church that gave away a free car on Easter Sunday to boost attendance on Easter Sunday. So they gave away a free car. Everybody that came got their name put in the hat. They pulled it out sometime in the service, and somebody in the service won a free car. You know why we have to do that garbage? No solemnity in churches anymore. We've stopped explaining. People are not drawn to the holiness and the majesty and the beauty of God revealed in His Word anymore. Why? Because we've stopped explaining Scripture to people. When you stop explaining Scripture to people, there's nothing in that 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 draws people. There's nothing in the service to which people want to come. And so you've got to draw them in with clown communion and free cars. No solemnity. No reverence. No awe for God. And Sunday morning worship services and the preaching, and this is an indictment of my own peers, the preaching is all about entertaining people and giving people something to come and laugh at or listen to that will compete with Seinfeld reruns at home on Sunday morning. That's what services are all about anymore in evangelical Christianity. We've lost the solemnity. We have lost the seriousness of who God is and what He has called us to. There's no reverence. Paul's not having clown communion with these Jews in Rome. He's not a stand-up comic. He's not entertaining them. What is he doing? He is explaining to them the Scriptures and he is solemnly testifying. As he says in Acts chapter 20, I taught you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. When he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels to maintain these principles without partiality. Does he sound flippant there? 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 14, Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. 2 Timothy 4 verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by His appearing in His kingdom. What? Preach the Word. Solemnness. Explaining to them the Scriptures. Solemnly testifying to them. And the third thing is persuasiveness. Trying to persuade them. Oh, I need to explain what the Kingdom of God was. Solemnly testifying about the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God is sort of Luke's phrase that he uses to refer to the Gospel message, the expanse of the Word, the Word spreading, the the message of the Word, 
That's his. That's how Luke uses throughout the book of Acts the kingdom of God. He's not talking about the millennial reign of Christ. He's not talking about the thousand-year reign of Christ. He's not talking about some allegorized, non-existent kingdom which is spiritually present here, which will never end. Not talking about any of that. He is talking about the gospel message and how you and I can be subjects of the king through faith in Jesus Christ. That is the message of the kingdom as Luke uses it and as Paul used it in his preaching. So he was explaining to them that. He was solemnly testifying. And third, he was seeking to persuade men concerning Jesus. Seeking to be persuasive. Now friends, humanly speaking, I think that this is one of the keys to Paul's effectiveness in his own ministry. And I say that without diminishing the power of the Spirit or the power of the work of the Word of God at all because we're going to get to that in just a second. But Paul was seeking to persuade them When you and I teach or when you and I evangelize or when you and I preach, we do not just simply communicate a list of facts. You're a sinner. Christ died for your sin. Oh, it was the third one. Oh, He rose again. Number fourth is, oh, you got to have faith in Jesus. There you go. That's the Gospel. It's not enough to simply communicate to people ideas, concepts, or facts. When you teach, and when you preach, and when you evangelize, you must have as your heart motive to persuade them concerning the Gospel. Do you feel the passion of the word persuade? Do you feel that? Paul was not just simply going through a list of doctrinal issues. He was saying, look, I want you to become as convinced of what I believe as I am convinced of. In Acts chapter 17, so this was Paul's custom, he went into the synagogue in Thessalonica for three Sabbaths. He reasoned and he talked. Discussed, discussed, and he debated the scriptures with the Jews in Thessalonica. And verse 4 says some of them were persuaded. Acts chapter 18, he goes into Corinth. He does the same thing. He goes and he tries to persuade them concerning Jesus from the Old Testament law and the prophets. And then when the Jews rose up in the city of Corinth and brought an objection against Paul, you know what they said about him? This man persuades people to worship against our law. What was their objection? He's too persuasive. Acts chapter 19, he got to Thess- uh Ephesus, and he did the same thing, trying to persuade them concerning Jesus. And Demetrius, the silversmith, rose up in the city of Ephesus, and he started the riot by saying, this man persuades men everywhere, both here and in Asia, to turn away from our idols. He was persuasive. And when Paul preached Christ to Agrippa, Agrippa knew, he's not just here to give me his testimony, he's not just here to give me his legal brief, because he said to Paul, you expect in such a short period of time you're going to make me a Christian? You're going to persuade me? Agrippa knew he's not just trying to talk to me. He really wants to persuade me to believe the same way that he does. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. And I love that verse because Paul goes on in the rest of that passage to say, we are ambassadors of Christ as though God were making a plea through us to be reconciled to Him. Therefore, Paul says, we beg of you, be reconciled to God through the death of His Son. We beseech you, we implore you, We try to persuade you. Will you please, please be reconciled to God through the death of His Son? Persuasiveness. Friends, I have a a confession to make to you. Every Sunday that you show up here and I step into this pulpit, I have as my goal to persuade you about something. You maybe even didn't know this, but right now I'm trying to persuade you to be persuasive. Did you catch that? I'm doing everything in my power to persuade you to become persuasive. Persuasive in your teaching, persuasive in your evangelizing, persuasive in your day-to-day witnessing, persuasive in how you deal with people so that you might persuade men to the truth. And whether it is the doctrine of 
election or whether we're talking about marriage or whether we're talking about sanctification or the perseverance of the saints or creation or any text of Scripture or any subject in Scripture, I have as my goal to persuade you of something before we leave here on Sunday mornings. Now, some of you will get up on a Sunday morning and you'll fold your arms and you'll say, no, I'm not persuaded. You tried your best, but I don't believe the way you do. I'm not persuaded that what you just told me was the truth. To which I say, fine. Fine. You're not hurting my feelings. You know why? It's not my job to persuade you. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Some of you Calvinists out there have been waiting for me to say that. You're thinking, man, you're preaching as if it all depends on you. I do. Every Sunday morning I preach as if it all depends on me. And I pray every Sunday night as if it all depends on God. Because that's what we do. I seek to persuade you. You say, I'm not persuaded. All right. It won't be because I didn't try. And friends, if somebody rejects Christ in your life, may it not be because you were not persuasive enough or because you did not try and persuade them. Now you say, Jim, I don't have the charisma to be persuasive. I'm not quick-witted. I'm not quick with facts. I'm not slick-tongued. I'm not an articulate speaker. You don't have to be any of that. Persuasiveness has nothing to do with style at all. You know what persuasiveness has to do? It has to do with the fact that you come to the encounter, the witnessing encounter, the teaching encounter, with this in your mind. I want to persuade them concerning something. Now, maybe you are persuasive like Jonathan Edwards was persuasive. And you can stand up and read your manuscript like this and talk to people. And every once in a while, pound the pulpit. And people will fall down in the aisles. And people will become overwhelmed by the Spirit of God and conviction of sin. Maybe that's your persuasiveness. Everybody's persuasiveness is different. But friends, when you come to people to to bring them to faith in Christ, to... Share with them the gospel you have as your consuming passion. Your goal is to persuade men and women that what you believe is true. How do you do that? By explaining to them the Scriptures, solemnly testifying concerning repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with all persuasiveness, with every bit of passion, don't manufacture it. Right? If it's not you to... To shout and scream, then don't go into a witnessing encounter and try and manufacture passion. There's nothing worse than manufactured passion. Somebody banging on the pulpit at the wrong time for emphasis. You know, weak point, pound louder. There's nothing, don't manufacture your passion, but just come to them with the intention, I want to persuade them concerning Jesus. That's what Paul was doing. Explaining, solemnly testifying, and persuading them. Almost forgot my three points. I'm obviously not that passionate about it, am I? <laughs> Friends, those are solemnly, those are sorely needed in our day, and they are terribly lacking. We don't have explaining of scripture going on anymore. In your average pulpit, that's not what we have. What you have is video clips, you have stories, you have anecdotes, you have illustrations, you have what this means to me, you have this uh, poem and that poem and blah, 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 and all that rambling that goes on. You don't have people explaining the text of scripture. You don't have solemnity. We got clown communions and raffles and giveaways. And um, there was another church, four free $100 gas cards for coming to church on this particular Sunday. Four people would get free $100 gas cards. That's what we got instead of solemnity. And we don't have persuasiveness. You know why? Because once you stop explaining the Scripture, there's nothing to be passionate about yourself. And once there's nothing more to be passionate about yourself, why try and be passionate to other people? So we don't have persuasiveness. Nobody's persuaded. Christians don't even believe that what they believe is true. There's an element of seriousness to it. There's an element of certainty to it. You see, Paul's going into this and he's saying, this is the truth. Believe it. This is the truth. 
Now somebody may say, I don't believe that's true. To which you say, it doesn't matter whether you believe it to be true or not, it's still true. Because true is true. And it doesn't become true once you believe it. You may reject it your whole life, but it's still true. Now churches are plagued by an emergent church movement which says you can't be certain about anything. And they're most certain about that. You can't be certain about anything. You can't be certain about anything. Who's to say that there's a heaven and a hell? Who's to say that God's going to send sinners to hell? Who's to say that we are to say what Scripture means? Who's to say, who am I to say that that's what that text of Scripture means? And so we're plagued by this lack of certainty. Paul wasn't. This is true, he said. And I want to persuade you that this is true. So when they walked away from there, they said, you know what? Man, that guy, that guy did everything in his power to convince me that that was true. And you and I ought to do that. I'm running out of time, but not out of point, so we need to move on to number three. First of all, the place of Paul's ministry. Second, we notice the passion of his ministry. Third, we notice the power behind his ministry. Look at, this is where we get to verses 24, or the end of verse 23, I should say. He was doing this from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. He's talking to Jews. They respect the Old Testament as a, as a source of authority and an authoritative source for speaking to them about things of faith and things of practice and their Messiah. And so Paul opens up the Old Testament to them and he begins to preach Christ. Now, if you want to know what that looked like, I would suggest on your own time, go back to Acts chapter 13. And you'll see there a sample message that Paul gave in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch where he was explaining Christ to the Jews. I think that that's exactly what Paul did there. I think that's what he did in Rome. He simply unfolded to them the Old Testament prophecies and said, look, we need a Savior. God promised that it would be a son of David. God promised that that son of David would sit upon the throne. In order for that to happen, in order for him to rule forever, he must suffer, he must die, he must rise again. There is one person who is the son of David, who suffered on a cross, who rose again, and he's qualified to sit on the throne of David. Therefore, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So believe on him, or you'll fall under the judgment and the condemnation of the prophets. That's Acts chapter 13. That's what Paul said. I think that's what he's doing here. Now, do you have to use the Old Testament in sharing Christ? You don't have to. You can use the New Testament. Paul only had the Old Testament. I would suggest if you're witnessing to a Jew, only use the Old Testament. Psalm 22, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, for starters. Go to those passages and witness to a Jew from the Old Testament. Some of you are scared to witness and evangelize, aren't you? You know why that is? For most Christians, evangelism is not something we consider to be our, our best suit, our strongest suit. I think it's because sometimes we're afraid that somebody's going to reject it or not believe it. I think that held Paul back. Now listen, you're going to see next week, next time he expected people to reject it. That's the beauty of evangelism. And you can go in and say, okay, who's going to reject it today? Right? Instead of worrying, oh, if I share Christ, he'll reject it. Well, give him a chance to reject it. Let him reject it. There's fun in being rejected. So do that and be rejected. Woo, we got a cheer over here from the... Good. Okay, verse 24. He did this from both law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. Did this from morning until evening. All day long. My friends, I want to confess something to you. As somebody who does this every Sunday and every opportunity that I can, if you've never preached or taught a lesson or a class, then you have really, I don't think, a true appreciation of how exhausting and taxing it can be. If you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're a youth teacher, if you're a preacher 
or a pastor and you stand before God's people and you do it right, then you know that when you walk home on Sunday afternoon, you walk into your house at 12 o'clock on 12.30 on Sunday afternoon, first thing you want to do is hit the sheets and go to sleep because you're exhausted, you're drained. I sweat up here. I sweat. I mean, I, I'm sweating. I'm drenched and I'm exhausted. And you get done with it. Paul did this all day. I'm a pansy. He did this all day. Sun up to sundown. They were coming to him. And he was explaining and persuading and answering their questions and dealing with their roadblocks and studying the Scriptures and teaching and preaching one-on-one, one-on-ten, one-on-twenty, one-on-hundred. Whatever it was, they came to him and he did this from sunup to sundown. That is that is unbelievable passion and that is unbelievable stamina for a guy that was over 60 years old. 60 years old. Remember in Troas when he preached all night long and Eutychus fell out the window and he raised him from the dead and he went back up and broke bread and preached till daybreak. And what did he do at daybreak? He said, man, i got to go home. I'm exhausted. i got to sleep. No. Walked across land to the nearest seaport to catch a ship to continue on. Several miles. That is incredible stamina that Paul exhibits here. He did this all day long. And the power behind his method, the power behind his evangelism and his ministry was the Word of God. He did it for Moses. And he did it from the prophets. Friends, don't share with people your testimony. Don't share with people how you came to faith in Christ. Those things have their place. But listen, there's no power in that. There is only one place where there is any power. And you're holding it in your lap. This is it. This is the only thing that God has promised that He will bless and promised that He will use to bring the lost to faith in Christ. The sheep hear His voice when they hear the shepherd speak, and there's only one place that the shepherd speaks. So in all of your witnessing encounters, you use the Word of God. Because Scripture says, James chapter 1, verse 18, it is in the exercise of His Word, that His will, that we were brought forth by the Word of truth. We have been saved not of a perishable seed by that which is imperishable, because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the more confidence you have in Scripture, the more you use it in evangelism. And the less you use Scripture in evangelism, the less successful you will be. Why? Because there is only one thing that God has promised. I will draw my sheep to myself when they hear the shepherd's voice, and there's only one place where they hear the shepherd's voice, and that's in the Word of God. So you abandon this, then stop evangelizing. But if you're going to evangelize, which I highly suggest, if you're going to share Christ, which I highly encourage you to do, then use the Word of God. It doesn't mean that you have to crack it open and say, okay, I want to read to you something. It just means that you have to, from memory, say, this is what the Lord says. In such and such a book, the Lord says this, this, and this, and quote Scripture to them. And let the Spirit of God do the persuading. But you be persuasive. And let the Spirit of God persuade them while you're being persuasive. You get that? There's two, two people who are persuading. You and the Spirit. Fourth element that we see from Paul's ministry. And that is the product of his ministry. And we're going to close with this one. The product of his ministry. Look at the verse 24. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken. Some of them walked away and said, okay, I get it. Been to Psalm 22, been to Isaiah 53, been to Psalm 16, Psalm 110. I get it. I see it. Born in Bethlehem, see it in the Old Testament prophets. I get it. Persuaded me. Paul, you brought me over. I'll believe. I'll trust the Savior. You convinced me. What's the next part of the verse say? But others would not believe. Some said, nope. Paul, you haven't persuaded me. All of your passion, all of your sharing, all of your teaching. Now friends, here's the question I ask. How in the world is that possible? How in the world can you sit with a rabbi like Paul and listen to him explain and persuade and testify and teach the Scriptures and open them up and show you everything in there 
and bear testimony to what the Scripture says and debate and encourage and strengthen and talk and dialogue and deal with your issues and your objections. And how can you sit there and listen to Him do that all day long and still walk away and say, I will not believe it. How is that possible? Luke answers. That's where the quotation from Isaiah comes in. There's a reason that they would not believe. And we're going to look at that next time that we're together. Friends, the place of Paul's ministry, the passion of his ministry, the power behind his ministry, and the product. You're going to share Christ. Do it wherever you can. That's the place. You use the power of the Word of God and you use passion, persuasiveness, explaining, and solemnly testifying. And then you leave the product up to God. Some will believe. Some will not believe. That's not your concern. Your concern is to be persuasive. Your aim is to be persuasive. Your aim is to share the truth. And you leave the results up to God and let Him do the work. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the example of the Apostle Paul. It encourages and thrills our hearts to see a man who is so passionate about Your Word, so passionate about truth, so passionate about Christ. And God, I ask that You would give to each of us a fire in our bellies for the truth, and Your Word, and a love for the Savior, and a love to see others come to faith in Him. Give us the boldness that we need to fulfill the calling that You've given to us, which is to share the Gospel with every living creature under the face of heaven, that we might be effective and faithful messengers of the truth of Scripture and the glorious Gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank You in His name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.